Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Momentus. So let me just dive into my little kind of personal history. I just got back from a little consulting trip, working with a big team in Europe, and then did a little speaking at a conference. And Juliet and I just had this kind of crash. We're going to zip to Europe and leave our kids behind. And one of the things that goes out the window there is our sleep, we know, and our exercise, because we may or may not have access to gyms. So the one thing we focus on is walking. And when I say walking, we don't just walk like 5,000 steps. We really try to get our 15 to 20,000 steps. One is that it really helps us sleep to accumulate enough fatigue that we actually want to have that sleep pressure and go to sleep. And two, it's the one thing we can sort of control. We're just going to walk everywhere, then eat the pastry, and then walk everywhere. So when I travel, believe it or not, the only supplement we take is collagen because it's one of those things where I know that if I can get the collagen in the morning, that my feet, my connective tissues, my all of those things are going to be calling for it and sucking it up. I know I'm going to be eating all the whole foods, but that collagen is really a simple thing for us to, to manage. Now, it's less simple, of course, when I take a powder through, uh, you know, something like security, but I feel like that's part of the adventure, right? It's like, hey, what are you doing here? Hey, I'm taking care of my connective tissues. I'm not I'm doing anything nefarious. But I just want to put on record that even on your non-training days, when you're just trying to walk or if you're trying to walk to sleep more or just have better foot health, think about layering in collagen first thing in the morning. The Momentous Collagen is third-party tested. It has clinically formulated collagen peptides. It is the real deal. Not all collagens are the same. And I want you to have the same experience I had. So go to thereadystate.com slash momentous. The code is TRS. That's the Ready State, but just TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Enjoy. This episode of the Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now, you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks, so you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. Kenny Kane is a lifelong performer and coach who's fueled by improving quality of life for people in very principled ways. He grew up in a family fitness business with a mother in the swimming hall of fame and a father who was an efficient even at the Olympics. 
He bought CrossFit Los Angeles in 2014 with a vision to build a unified coaching team and the business to support it. And then this business rebranded in 2017 as Oak Park, a nod to Kenny's roots in Santa Rosa, California, as well as a symbolic transition to something more evergreen. His dream has always been to create an environment where he can be a student and learn entirely new things from the people within it. As the Oak Park coaches and community continue to evolve, that dream became more of a reality. We are really thrilled to bring you this great conversation with one of our best friends. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Kenny Kane, welcome to the Ready State podcast. I am so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> just so we just set expectations for everyone here, Kenny's one of our best friends. We've been, we're really, I would like to say we're close, but that maybe doesn't go as far as we'd like to uh, go. We, we've had a relationship from, as friends, as co-workers, as, man, it, it just transcends. We're, we're parents together. I think we've been doing this as long as you've been doing this, and uh, it's really fun to get caught up with you on, and introduce you to our community. And it will be a Christmas miracle if we actually ask you any actual questions. Fact. <laughs> great and great. And additionally, for the Ready State listeners, these two are just fresh back from the European trip. So... How the flow goes is going to be, well, we'll see. Entirely dictated by you. Well, my, uh, <laughs> my, my brain is a little bit fluffy with pastry. So uh, I'm going to just do the best I can. We're a little puffy right now, Kenny. We ate a lot of Kenny, simple carbohydrates. Tell us where you are. Set up. Where are you coming live from? I'm currently coming to live from uh, the Pacific Palisades where me and my wife and our two little boys uh, live. Juliet made a sojourn here last year. Gosh. Time has flown. But yes, I'm in the west side of Los Angeles as we record the Son of a Gun. And is that where your training facility is as well? Mm, Santa Monica. So adjacent. So the city's in order going <laughs> south to north, Venice, Santa Monica, Palisades, and then the Boo, the Malibu. So yeah, I'm kind of in the middle. But our gym is in Santa Monica. So I do want to ask you about your gym, but not till later. Because I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your athletic career. And also that's going to lead into, um, I think like many people, including me, you have not had a straight path to your current professional situation. And I want to ask about that. But And also I know because your own athletic background is so tied to your parents who were amazing, amazing humans. Maybe you could talk a little bit about them too. And let me just set that up for everyone that one time someone was writing an article about Juliet and they tried to summarize her transition from world champion, et cetera, et cetera, to gym owner. And they just said, lawyer turned personal trainer. And I think just like reduced it down. <laughs> so, so I think I'd like to see you try to top that. Yeah. So let's see how you can just distill it into two words. That's amazing. Knowing Juliet, that just like, I mean, they should have just made a sound effect and, and made it. Oh, <laughs> Step one, law school. Step three, personal training. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, uh, well, for me, look, I grew up just north of where you guys are at in uh, Santa Rosa, California, born in the city. Got my, I don't, you guys missed it. You're in Europe, but great finish to the warrior season last, uh, last week. It was amazing. I grew up in the Bay Area. My grandfather was uh, the president of the AAU in the late 60s and early 70s. And that kind of set the stage for our family's experience with athletics. At the time, that was the governing body for world-class athletes in the U.S. And my mom kind of raised me with an athletic mind, but also a coach's mind. 
and a performance mind unknowingly. Uh, she was a world-class swimmer. She's in the Swimming Hall of Fame. She can coach anything and has arguably the, the strongest kinesthetic eye I've ever been witness to. She used to, as a teenager, enter all-male races and swim shore to shore underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. This is in the late 40s and early 50s when it was still a prison. And uh, she used to, on dates with my dad, swim out to Alcatraz as an 18, 19 year old and the armed guards would walk up to her and go, uh, uh, you got to turn around. <laughs> They'd be dumbfounded because, you know, the prison was built because nobody was supposed to be able to survive the swim leaving there. And here there is this teenage girl swimming out to Alcatraz for shits and giggles. Yeah. That yeah. Made, like that it's made no big deal. Here I am on the dock. Really, made the Clint Eastwood movie look dumb. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Like Top Gun when you're flying up there and, and then all of a sudden there's like a kid in his homemade airplane next to you. What's up, Tom? Yeah, I understand. You know, growing up with that, my mom was uh, just a beast mentally. She just unintentionally sort of required that of me. And so, you know, at a dinner table as an infant, I'm with Mark Spitz, who was routinely at our you know house for, for dinner and this kind of thing. And so we're just around the, this pedagogy of coaches and athletes. And my mom's coach was the first swim coach on the planet to use something called intervals. And so again, this is seven decades ago, but like at the time, obviously novel, but just so much life instruction being a, the first, like everybody listening, everybody just, we just assume the intervals are to be used if we're adapting human physiology. And yet she was literally on the cutting edge of all that as it began. So kind of growing up in that, I, what's interesting is that I refused swimming. I became a, a little bit of a land animal and I, I chose soccer and martial arts as my two primary sort of disciplines growing up. And Back then in the 70s, martial arts was really influenced by Bruce Lee in the Bay Area. So like our, our dojo was like a mixed before. The, now everything is mixed modal sort of martial arts. But back then it was heresy to have one style mixed with another style. And so I see you have a Shaolin style. It's like and then that would those were fighting words apparently before that. And so like a lot of the dojos that dualism started to collapse and people started to really be in the mindset of like you know what let's exchange ideas more openly rather than be closed and such as our dojo and i i grew up with you know i started when i was six turning seven years old that influenced every bit of my directionality and that coupled with my mom just it allowed me to kind of do semi-reasonably well as a collegiate athlete and a post-collegiate athlete in soccer and track. So I, was, I, I wound up being a sub-national class runner. And, um, you know, I got paid to play soccer in a semi-pro league up in Davis, Sacramento area for a year or two after college as well. So it really, you know, started with, with a mom who understood coaching, physiology, human movement, a family that supported it. But man, did it, I think the best life lesson I ever got from my mom was, just sort of the the necessity of developing your mind and your body. And there was a moment where I went to UC Davis and we were at a track meet and I had just finished running. And she pointed out something about my teammates when I was cooling down. She, she happened to catch me on the cool down run. And she goes, just look across the stadium. And I looked across the stadium and she goes, what do you, what do you see right there? And I go, well, that, that's, that's the team, mom. What, what are you trying to get at? And she goes, all of them are studying right now. So between their events, like all the Davis athletes were studying and she just she just made a comment like in that moment, you're in the right place. 
And that's how she wanted me to be raised. It's like there's no distinction between developing your mind and developing your body. These things are inexorably that they're meshed together and they must mesh together. And so you sure they weren't on TikTok. (laughs) 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 And so begins this whole concept, which has really been driving me on that to this a world in which I'd like to live that includes intentionality, not impulsivity, but we can speak on that a little bit. You grow up in sort of this mindset of, of really human potential. That's really, I mean, it's a sort of a weird word people bat around, but you're, you're around elite athletes who also are very much thinking about developing mind and the brain around that kind of sort of just more being a rounded person, integrated person. And then you just said at that moment, you're like, I'm going to be a coach. You knew after your, like, is this where we go from lawyer to personal trainer? Like, can you explain? Because that's a pretty amazing. This is when you went from soccer player to comedian. Yeah, pedigree. Because I know you as a coach, and I've always known you as a coach in the almost 20 years that we've been friends, which is shocking since we're both That's MBS. We know him as a comedian, too. Mm, Do we? I mean, (laughs) I do. I do. Well, I I mean, I originally became familiar with your work on Southwest, which we'll get to in a second. But in the the meantime, um, (laughs) there's true facts, ladies and gentlemen. We'll get there in a second. But talk about... Did you, because you said, hey, I, I, I'm not going to be a swimmer. I'm going to be, in a, you know, and that can be happened because you just grow up immersed, no pun intended, with a culture that you're like, I need to find my own way. Your parents are great athletes and coaches and, and run an incredible facility. Did you say, I'm not going to do that? Was that a conscious thought or did you fight that power? hundred percent. Like, like I'm finishing, you know, high school, going into college and I'm just seeing my mom who's running a, a fitness facility in, in Santa Rosa and, and she's still coaching, but mostly retired at that point. And I'm looking at this going, man, I want, I want no part of this. I want no part of this. Although it is so in me. And I think in the end, the thread that puts all of this together is there's something about performance period that allows a human being to step into the moment. And whether you're doing stand-up comedy, a track meet, a soccer race, a, a triathlon, a hip-hop routine, it doesn't really matter. It's all the same thing psycho-emotionally. In a moment or two or in 17 days or six months or whatever it is, you need to step up and go. It's that time. Do you think people most don't make those connections? They're just like they're exercising because it's good for their heart or they're trying to change their body composition? That most people aren't recognizing that those that tr- potential for that? Look, you and I have been advocating for a long time. We need to retire sort of a a siloed consideration of what our physicality and our mentality mean. As our good friend Andy Galpin always talks about, hey, look, there is a a line between psychology and physiology, and it's always dancing back and forth. And you can go upstream or downstream to positively and or negatively affect both directions. And in the middle, you've got the nervous system kind of like, you know, putting through traffic. But in the end, yes, like people perceive it to be that siloed. But in the end, our job as expert coaches, communicators is to kind of go, that's good. Your heart is pumping, but also there's a lot of other stuff going on and we need to contextualize that to a greater degree. To have it, A, be more efficacious and solve a real situation, which is the health of the planet, which is a larger concern, but we can do that in our sort of immediate circles. I mean, every coach that I came across that was coming to family dinners that, you know, my my track coach in college was the the Olympic coach for track and field in 96. The commonality in all these people is that like 
yes, do they understand this thing to the most expert degree? Like what position does your big toe need to be in to get the optimal push up? Yeah, all that. And what's happening in the being of the person? Like they're, they're running in concurrent timelines. They're not separable. And so that was just taught to me through martial arts by being exposed to be these people and just by continued repetition, really. I mean, it was just like growing up around that, just sort of the way, whether people were explicitly communicating it or not, but they understood that the, the human with the physical, the physical with the human, that they just go so, so together. And, you know, my mom could press on people. She could just put the thumb on you and just kind of go lean in. And she was so fierce. And she, she, when she just kind of like look at you, our track coach in college had the same, same intensity, but she just kind of like get at you just by a look. It would just be like, okay. And the look wasn't so much like what's going on in your body. It's like, what's going on in you? Like, where are you at? Where are you at right now? Right now. Cause we either need to fish or cut bait. And which is, you know, the ultimate, you know, you get back, it, it winds up being fairly simple. Like today we're going to go hard today. We're going to go easy because I can see the, the the look in your eyes. Am I correct that your dad was also very sporty? Number one, that's part A question. And then part B question, isn't it interesting that you look back on sort of your mom's contribution as, you know, like body and mind connection, but then also she was running a fitness facility and was an entrepreneur. And that may have some connection to what you're currently doing at this moment. That's called family trauma where you just pass on yeah, yeah. the, so you're, the you're, generational you know. family trauma. I mean, you can't escape it. <laughs> Caroline and Georgia, welcome to uh, your gym. The <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because my mom was trying to like, oh, do you, do you want to? And just as a little sidebar, you know, you and I had talked as, well, it's been probably a decade now since we talked about the potential of like having like a human performance institute just north of where you guys are at using the, the 16 acres that was once the Oak Park. Uh, but that burnt down in the fires in 2017. My mom really did want me to take over the family business. And that did start to circle back after I just needed to rebel and go be a stand-up comedian for 15 years. But in, in that rebellion, I just kind of, I didn't exhaust in my teen years. I just waited until my 20s and then kept it until I was 40 and then went back to uh, <laughs> back. Uh, fitness is, was always a threat. And the other part of it that is highly influential is my dad was a hilarious dude. And he just by his nature, uh, my mom didn't, frankly, have much of a sense of humor, but my dad was hilarious. And I always sort of appreciated, you know, her sort of intensity and his just comedic ability to take any mo moment that's that's rough and just soften it with just the, the, the common sense of humor and comedy. And so after I became a school teacher for three years, or while I was a school teacher after finishing UC Davis, I started going to um, open mics in San Francisco and just kind of getting my getting my chops a little bit. And then by 99, 2000, I started going on the road and touring the U.S. and, you know, spent the better part of the 2000s touring. And then when I was not touring, doing stand-up comedy, I was doing like fitness videos, th things like belly button thighs, for example, and lose weight in eight. Peanut butter jelly time videos? Peanut butter jelly time. And so that really became like... I'd come home from gigs and I just, I was working in fitness all through 2000s. And, and it just got to a point where in stand-up comedy, I started being inspired by my, my father, really. And then kind of going, okay, I've become part of the 1% that has thought of being an artist for a living. I'm doing that. 
And I also made a conscious choice at that point. The, the year of two, two, 210, my first child, Cameron, was born. And like in that year, I started kind of going, I'm really second guess this, this stand up comedy thing for a living. And I was also at that point, neat, like I was deep in the profession of it. And I realized mm, the lifestyle is not, this is not what I want for a lifestyle. And then there it was right in front of me fitness. I mean, I've been doing it the whole time. Never really got, I was coaching, teaching for decades and it was just right in front of me. And I, I, I was like, now this is, although it's passed down, it's coming from a very meaningful place. Shifting back into the late two, 2000s, 210s, I'm starting to kind of go, let's retire from standup and let's focus more on, on fitness and health and wellness. I think there's performance and there's performance and maybe because my own background is in athletics, but to me, doing stand-up comedy is perhaps one of the hardest and scariest things. We have a friend across the street who's just like, uh, she's a mom and has a regular job, but she just does stand-up comedy because she loves it. And man, like, how do you survive in that world? I mean, Hashtag man, asking I just for a like, friend because we think Caroline can oh be stand Oh my God. I, I just think it's got to be the hardest. You know, it's one thing to like, run or play a sport. And maybe again, it's because that's what I relate to, but I just have such mad respect for stand-up comedy. It's so hard. And I think comedians have are so smart and so fast. Stand-up is in many ways, professionally, the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, there's... The <laughs> you just don't have a big window to get it right. You have to be so tight. And then the pressure's always on because, you know, it's human energetics in real time. So... You know, there is nothing worse when you're headlining a set and you got 45 minutes or an hour and you go out and, and you know, you, you open, you kind of go, okay, okay, it's going to be a little, we're going to lift rocks up a hill for a minute. And you kind of go, okay, I'm going <laughs> to start to, you know, throw some elbows here and like, oh, okay, that's not really, not really connecting with them. Okay, what's that? Oh, and then you start looking at your clock going, yeah, uh, I got I got forty seven minutes left. <laughs> Out of forty five minutes, <laughs> totally. I got, I, got, I got, and then the countdown is so slow. Back to that minute that you've got to get off stage, and the entire stand up comedy industry works off of a sub industry. So stand up comedy in clubs works as alcohol. It's a bar. What, what you're doing when you go to stand up comedy clubs. So there's two th two concurrent things going on. People are going for a show, but the way the clubs make money is to sell drinks. So they have different sort of needs, right? So the the comedian, the, the human being, needs to be loved and appreciated, and you know, brought out of their little fragility. And the club needs thousands of dollars because people are having a good time buying lots of drinks. And so they overlap. But if, if you suck, you know, the punishment is multifold. One, the, just a, the, I'll just describe one of my worst experiences doing stand-up. I was hired to welcome the incoming freshman at UC Davis. What year was this? Just, just for reference. I don't know, probably 2000. And the, the pro if it was 2010, I would have been able to handle the situation so much better. But I go on stage and, and there's this interesting sub-story sub to this, too. I was having a hard time with my girlfriend who was supposed to come and watch the show, but she didn't. And so I had this plan that I was going to crush the show. There was going to be all 2,000 incoming freshmen at the thing in the little basketball stadium. And I was like, woo-woo, you know. And I go on, 
But see, they mistimed the whole thing because what they, they had was a DJ who's just like going crazy and all these 18-year-olds are away from home for the first night in their life. They are unsupervised. So it is just it's just surging sexuality and physicality and music and yes, probably some drugs. And so the just this the, the grinding and it was like a like a rave on crack. And then they go, and now we gotta stop it because it's time for comedy. The guy coming to the stage, his name is, and he looks back, he literally forgot everything. And he goes, his name is what? Kenny, Kenny Kane. And so there's 2,000 college kids, half of which have erections, are standing there going, what's happening right now? And then immediately, one kid goes, you suck. And another guy's, you suck. And then, then, then the blue starts like, boo. And then they all start going, <laughs> you suck. You suck. 2,000 people saying in unison, you suck. And you're sitting there going, I got to get paid. I got to do my 10 minutes. And I'm looking at my clock. I got nine minutes to go. You suck. And then there's some very compassionate, just very angelic. They're probably not 18 yet. They're probably 17-year-old freshmen. And they're looking up at the stage and going, we like you. We think it's okay. They were literally saying that. And there was just three of them the three sweet angel amigos and they were trying to like boost me up, but all the goodwill in the world from those three humans that, that like me and, and the other 19,997 that didn't, man, that was, uh, it's the longest 10 minutes of your life right there. I know that you guys can feel that, but there's something to that. Now I'm so thankful for that experience and all the others that were like that. I had some crazy trips in Afghanistan where one time I came off of a black Hawk and they, and we always, I was traveling with the trio. We, I went over to the Middle East a couple of times to perform for the troops. And it was my turn to go first on this particular show. We didn't know that we were three hours late in Bagram. And they had just captured 20 Taliban. So we get off the Blackhawk. I'm wearing Kevlar at the time. And they're going, yeah, we're going to go right to the stage and we got to start the show. I'm like, okay. And they're just, and I'm thinking the shows, we still got 10 minutes to get a, so as we're walking to the stage, I'm looking at the bad guys that I've seen on TV and they got hoods over them and they're, they're cuffed up. And I'm just like a civilian, just like administering that going, okay, let me just process that. And the guy's saying to me, hey, dude, you got to get your vest off because you're going on stage. I'm like, what? And then he opens the door and, and there was 1,500 angry troops because it's 114 degrees, literally. And they're just pissed and waiting for the, the stand-up comedy show. You suck. You, you suck. suck. You suck. And I'm, I'm in this like to alternate universe. Like I'm not present. I'm just flying on Blackhawks. That's the thing. Process that. Just Okay. There's the bad guys. These guys just literally just blew up a bunch of our guys and we went, okay, I'm processing. The, no, go. Okay. But the beauty of all this is that these moments give so much teeth and so much stone because no matter what, like after that in life that comes, you have these rough moments, but they're so valuable to develop the stones for life. You know, Mark Devine always talks about VUCA. The world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And man, I've learned that hundreds of times, particularly in the 2015 to 2018 window, but like just that like having that emotional rigor to kind of go, do I really want to do this when I'm crying on interstate 80 between Winnemucca and Salt Lake city, when the place that I'm supposed to perform says we can't house you tonight. I have no money. And I'm listening to an Eve CD crying on the salt flats. Like what am I going to have sleeping in my car? The album's got me through it. 
in that great documentary about the guitar player Jack and uh, the Edge, and it's called "It Might Get Loud." Jack is talking about, hey, you, you really need to feel uncomfortable on stage. It's important that you feel something at risk. You're prepared, clearly. But he's like, if you, the microphone is two steps away tomorrow night, you need to put it three steps away. Because otherwise, you really just push play and send it in. And even if you, if you're, everyone doesn't know, you know, and the experience and performance is different if you're not sort of struggling. And what I hear underneath that is this ability to walk in and quickly understand the people and the context of the room you're in. And if you go in with this perfect plan, you know, you get in the face and, you know, your plan doesn't work anymore. It's so interesting. You know, we were just in Germany yesterday morning and uh, I just ran a camp <laughs> for 300 people. We couldn't go outside. And they're like, by the way, we have no equipment and four hours go. And it's 98 degrees in the hall. And so, you know, there's a lot of adjustment and, you know, working and trying to just, you know, give people this experience. But I understand that the power of being really uncomfortable, having imperfect things and the practice of that for decades, you cannot substitute that. Not having a chance to warm up as an athlete, not having a chance to have perfect food, not having a chance to have the right equipment, to to be in a fight with your family or feeling something uncomfortable and still having to go out and and cobble it together is what I just heard you describe, which is really amazing. I mean, those are bitter, bitter lessons. Hopefully you can come out intact with. You and I quote our, our good friend Laird all the time. Like, you know, he talks about it. He talks about it in the, in the context of a hamburger. If you can't eat a hamburger as prepared, you're a liability, which I really appreciate that. And if you go out and bonk because you haven't eaten for a while and now your precious little food thing, you're also a liability. How do you become less of a liability? And that is to to be in these positions. You know, I, as you were talking, I remember one more, one of the more um, poignant moments of my life was in, it was 2010. I was working in Vegas, very lucky. Bud Friedman, who's kind of a legend of comedy, loved me. And he used to send me up to Vegas to work three or four times a, a year. And I met a girl there while I was working in, in Vegas. And so uh, what I learned is that the first thing, first rule about Vegas is that sometimes it comes home and follows you to life. And so, um, so a condom broke is a short story. And then I get a call a month later from this gal and she says, well, I'm pregnant and I'm a mid Midwestern Catholic and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do anything about it. And I was like, okay. And I was driving and, and, um, you know, realized obviously that my life was going to change, going to meet another stand-up comedian at the time, a guy named Alan Havey. And I, <laughs> I got out of the car and he goes, Hey man, you look really you don't look good. Like he goes, did you knock somebody up? And I, and I got more white and he, and he goes, no, <laughs> just like, yeah. So he's just like, wow. And comedians love stuff like that. They're like, wow, it's hilarious. You know, and I'm like, Oh my God, right now it's not, I just I'm really, I need a moment, bro. The Spartans really like you, like your ability to find humor in the face of death. And I'm not saying that you mean, I know you love your child and I'm not trying to say, but like, it's such a great total, like, you know, it's a skill. Like all my comedian buddies were just like not giving me a moment, just like oh, <laughs> you're gonna get oh. over this, Kenny. We're gonna help. <laughs> just like, just, so anyway, fast forward, 
she had considered and was planning to move out to uh, California. And then when I was driving to go teach hip hop that one day, she called and said, hey, by the way, I'm not moving. And this is two weeks after before she's supposed to move out. And I just given up my apartment that was very affordable in Santa Monica. I was like, huh, okay." And, you know, then it's plan G at that point. And that night I had to go perform at the Laugh Factory. Dane Cook, who was immensely popular at that moment of time, was on stage for two and a half hours before I got on. He bumped everybody. And the owner of the club, Jamie Masada, comes up and, you know, I had a very high energy act. And he's like, buddy, buddy, you're the only one who can follow Dane with your energy and this and that. And I'm like, and all the other Equally capable headliners were also like, they were bailing. People with like major TV credits and all this. They're like, I don't want to follow Dane. I don't want to follow Dane. And it was fun. I'm like, how can we have a room full of 20-year vets and nobody want to go follow this? And because nobody does because it sucks, right? And so I had this very potent moment when they called me to go on stage. I was exhausted, just, just physically exhausted because I was supposed to go on hours before I get up at five every day or four 30 to train people for three or four hours in the morning. And then I'm going on stage at this point, it was easily 1 15 AM and I'm following Dane in his room, in his place. And it's just, and I'm not known. And so it's the guy followed by who the fuck is this guy? And so my introduction was parallel to the one that I got earlier. It's like, and now the other guy. And so I come on the stage and something bizarre happened. Like I was able to watch myself perform from another place. And I was just watching myself work the crowd. And I don't know if I've ever smashed as hard as I smashed. Now, this is years after the two prior experiences that I just described. But I don't know if it wasn't for those experiences that I wouldn't have been steeled for just the mindset of drop two tears in a bucket. Fuck it. Take it to the stage. Let's go because we got to go right now. And so in that moment, I got off stage, got up the next morning, trained, you know, some of my people. And I just realized, okay, I've made a decision. I'm obviously my daughter's not going to move here to California, but I'm going to stay here and try to figure out how to parent from California. It was one of the more brutal decisions that I've ever had to make in my life. But there was a lot of things underscoring why I I needed to make a choice that was right for me in the context of what had just happened 24 hours and and realizing I wasn't going to be near my daughter as she was raised. And all these things happening in an overlapping degree and just being able to kind of like push it into the performance of the moment to really force myself to grow. Well, what reminds me of is that Juliet is a total gamer. I mean, she's okay in her day-to-day life, but if you actually put Juliet under some real pressure, she only really gets better. I mean, Juliet has done things physically and emotionally and and spiritually and physically. Um, if you've spiritually, <laughs> if you've seen Hundred Foot Wave, you get that joke. And uh, the idea here is that you know because Juliet's competing, been competing, and is a world champion, national champion, state champion, and has been competing forever. When it really gets gnarlier, she is able to actually be better. So I feel like the same thing's happened to you. You the moment of following that comedian, Dane, on stage is one in a it's a end terminus of a thousand, ten thousand experiences. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, now you let's just well, I'll put it you own a gym and I'll put capital G because it is not just a gym. How are you thinking about shifting or training those? capacities in a physical experience where people are coming in three to five times a week. 
A, can we do that? And B, how are you consciously helping people connect the dots? Because I feel like that's the only way to practice for some people is to get really uncomfortable and do it over and over and over again. Could you also tee up what your gym is? Yeah. So I own Oak Park, Los Angeles, home of CrossFit Los Angeles. So we're one of the oldest CrossFit gyms. We're on our 18th year now of being a CrossFit gym. Older than San Francisco CrossFit, RIP. Yeah. Yeah. RIP. And, and truly one of the old, old guard. I think now what's left is I think we might be number two or three of like the original sort of first 10 gyms in the world. And we've seen a lot of evolutions, but to answer the question more directly, like what, what I'm interested in right now is if you take a very sim simple thing and how do, how do we communicate this in ones and twos to our people? Greg Glassman had a great fitness pyramid that we all bought into. And for those that aren't familiar, it's, it's very elegant. At the top of it, you have sport. At the very tip of the pyramid, if you can picture that, underneath that, you have weightlifting. Underneath that, you have gymnastics or body weight control. Underneath that, metabolic conditioning underneath that you have nutrition so that's like a pretty like eat right hey do your heart and lungs work can you hold your body up by itself can you throw some things around and can you be sporty like that's a great in ones and twos descriptor of are you fit are you ready for a bunch of stuff but the one thing that that's missing is context and so what i would say is let's make that pyramid a little bit deeper let's make it a little bit broader and underneath all of that is the context and the context has everything to do with what we now replace at the top end, which is sport, and replace that with one word, life. So everything going upward, can you contextualize your training so that your nutrition, so that your metabolic conditioning, so that your body weight control, so that your weightlifting serve you in the season of life that you're in, in a sustainable way? Spring. Just by the way, everyone wore in spring. <laughs> And so, <laughs> and so <laughs> it's not the solstice yet. Wait, no, it is the solstice today. It is the solstice. You brought that back from the East. Thank you, my friend. So when I look at like, how do we communicate that? Like we are still in a lexicon where people are putting the tools over the principles and it's just sort of like, what's the tool you're using? Okay, well, I use, I use ready state. And I do the thing. I, I do CrossFit or I do strength and conditioning or I do. Okay, you move your body and you try to take care of yourself. Good, good, good. But like, what's the deeper content? What are you trying to do in life right now? Man, woman, child? Like, that's the important thing. And asking that starts to really ignite often confronting questions for people because you, you ask a fundamental question. Hey, What's your purpose for training? Have you connected it to your mental and emotional well-being too? Because they go together. And for our gym, like I've reduced all of our thinking into two basic concepts. The why our business exists is to support the sustainable growth of humans that participate with us, period. The cause of our business is what we call, we started using a couple of years ago, the concept of GHP. So general human preparedness or performance. And so it's just a, a straightforward idea of like, look, are you using this physical practice to make you a better version of yourself? And what that ties every coach to is a more meaningful dialogue of the emotional and the mental parts of people's well-being because they are completely tied to the physical well-being. And while that's not for everybody in the West Side market, 
the people that have found us stay with us for 10, 15. We've got a couple of people who've been with us for almost a full 18 at this point. Well, it's, uh, let me just say that it is for everyone. Not everyone is ready to take on that practice, <laughs> right? Well, that's it. But as we know, as all of us know in the coaching world, like, look, and, and this is the thing that what I was trying to, when we started the podcast is like, what, what did all these coaches have in common? They had a way of understanding the being of people. Yes, they were absolute cutting edge when it came to physiology and movement mechanics and all these other things. But it's the other stuff that made them great. And so what I'm interested in, in a gym atmosphere is that. And what's interesting for us is that the whole thing has evolved for me personally, because now the majority of my time and the majority of my personal business as it relates to the gym is life coaching. I've got this, I'm wearing the hats, this treehouse, and we've got a kind of a tip of the spear group called the treehouse. And and the idea of the treehouse is we grow ourselves, we grow each other on purpose. And effectively, it's a men's group, but it's about a year and a half curriculum with really you know high cost buy-in. But we get down, we do a lot of physical work, but we do a lot of psycho-emotional work. We bring in mental skills coaches, guest speakers, and routinely in formal settings. And then we meet informally, you know, working out, sauna and ice, these kind of things to kind of like bridge the gap of where their growth is as humans. And so, you know, by allowing this conversation, it's allowed me to grow personally, but also the gym to grow in meaning for people. My biggest hope is that humanity at some point really starts to like appreciate the role of their physicality with their spirituality. Again, martial arts has a lot of influence on my thinking there, but you know, this concept is 5,000 years old with the yogic practices. So it's not, you know, you can't really strip it away. Like, you know, how you're being in this thing is how you're being elsewhere. And that, that, that's really compelling to me. It's like this, that's a practice that's sustainable. The methods themselves are just tools that you're using along the path. And you can be curious about those things and uh, retire them or bring them back or, or whatever. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm less concerned about that. So You've been talking, you and I and, and Juliet, the three of us have been talking about this, this practice for a long time. Too. It's, it's like, great. It's not just how many calories you burn today. <laughs> like, how did you feel? What was going on? How did you confront? How did you, all those things. Where else do you think if it's not for the gym? Because the gym doesn't always live up to this. I mean, just go on Instagram and you'll see what I mean. Because we feel like the gym is the only safe place in the world. And it's actually the only place where anyone maybe has exposure to a tool set to talk about sleep and the physical base practices and how they interact and how when things are hard, how they deal or how they manage little doses of micro fear and uncertainty. Where else do people get this in their lives? Because, you know, here you are in L.A. with theoretically people with lots of resources. And yet I think you probably would agree that most of the people in here are like, wow, I have never been asked of these things. I've just sort of blundered my way through without any meta awareness of how I work and in the underlying processes of my own self. Is that is that a fair characterization? It is, but also time's catching up. So as people get better at community, so where we lose people, look, this conversation is 5,000 years old. It's not new, one. But two, communicating it in a way that's meaningful for people in ones and twos, and then you know having an experience with it. One, one thing we do a lot, and let me try to answer the question from the lens of like a, some people relate to competence and some people relate to sincerity, right? So what's gone in the world right now? Trust. It's very hard to trust right now. I would say at a moment of human time where that's, and so 
all of us are wired biologically to kind of go, the competent biased ones are like, does this person know what they're talking about? Yeah. Okay. If they do, I'm going to follow them. And a lot of things are kind of built on that. And then there's a whole other group of people who are like, yeah, do I like this person? And then they, they trust first in that regard. But every human is a pinwheel of both of those things. And so our job, I believe, as health, wellness, and fitness experts is to chunk these conversations down in ways where we, we kind of tie the, the emotional piece of it and the mental piece of it and to, to many degrees, the spiritual piece of it to the physical. And again, you, you speak of like, we got to get rid of the siloed approach because it's just, it's not, we, we're not progressing as much as we could be if we had a more global lens to kind of look at this thing and agreed. And I think the way that we can do that is in our, A, communicative abilities, but then also understanding like we can charge people. It's like, here's all the goodies. And like, and, you know, 50% of them are going to go, the competent people are going to go, that's a good list. I like that. I'm going to start. And then the other part of it is like, hey, come with me on this thing, man. You're going to feel great. Just come with me. Trust me. You can be all right. And then, and if they're feeling that, they come with you. And if they like the other thing, and then we got to be extraordinary at what we do so that we can start bringing people along. You know, I think one of the biggest misgivings in the market of fitness, health, and wellness is what I would say is like some people, depending on what their product is, business principles often get applied to micro gym environments. And the irony there is that ideas scale, but human relationships do not. And that's just, you know, you and I have talked about Dunbar before. I'm a big fan of tribe and self-determination theory. Look, gyms work really well in micro environments up to 150, 200 people. And then after that, the wheels start falling off. You know, coaches peel off, clients peel off. You're like, screw that. But that isn't necessarily anything to do with the system or the personnel. It's just, that's humans. That's humans. We, we got about that much space. So have a business model that's related to that and understand that like we all care for the people that we guide. And so just start with that because that brings meaning to us professionally. And if there's lots of us that are good, then we can start answering the question, Kelly, how does this spread? I, I think it starts by people who understand it, who can communicate it and, and lead the charge, you know, in these small little micro communities. And that's a very specific vision, but I really do, you know, you saw it at your gym. I've seen it at mine for forever. I mean, there is real life changing that's happening. <laughs> it's happening, but it, it's hard to scale that. You know, so depending on what, so, and that's, that's why I say, hey, look, we got to, you know, be careful of what business systems we're applying because if we're talking about human relationships, that, that's a faulty assumption. And so sometimes business principles on, on like human relationships, it's just like oil and vinegar. It's like, yeah. We always felt like we could only ever have one gym. Yeah. We just, we just, right. people are always like, do you want to expand? Do you want to own multiple gyms? And, and we said, we already do that, but yeah, we already, you know, we had, we noticed this like the moment we tipped over 150 members, it was different, you know, and, um, we had to work a lot harder. Like, yeah. And, and how, how could we begin to scale this to, across gyms that are all over the city and we can't be there and our own imprint can't be on it. First of all, I love what you said about tools versus principles. And it's funny that we've all, sort of come to this in our advanced age of we being in this business. We're Yeah. That in fact, um, I'm sure we talked to you about it, but Kelly and I are working on this book called Built to Move, which is just all about saying, hey, you have to look at the principles and, you know, tools later, principles first. So anyway, I just want to say that's cool. But I, I did have a question about Treehouse and you said that it was 
for men and the, the sort of commentary I'll have is at our house lately, we often have this conversation started by me where current events happen. And I say to Kelly, dude, what is going on with men? Like men in this world are really sucking right now. You know, a lot of the bad stuff that we see in the news, I'm like, wow, men are, they're, they're struggling as men. And let me just jump um, in here and just say that Juliet samples that she's surrounded by women and then there's me. So I'm sucking. Well, no, really I'm not, I'm not, that, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's not true. I'm talking about these women around saying, me. Oh, I'm talking the only about man current here? events. I am I talking know, about I current know. events. And anyway, so I have no idea if you're, um, if Treehouse is for men, I would just love to hear about what the thinking is there and, and sort of why you chose that. I think fundamentally two things were happening. One was I work with pretty much high performers. They're alphas and they're, you know, the guys in the treehouse are, are, there's a lot of really well-known people in it. And, and then the business guys. And so it's a combination of artists and business guys and the business guys may not be well-known, but they're complete animals in, in their respective businesses. And the one thing that I've seen in all my years of working with, alpha men is that, and I forget how the saying goes, it's like the horse that gets you to water isn't going to be the one that gets you to the next thing, is that most men have a, a real difficult time transitioning from warrior to king. And, you know, I, I just blaze, I pull out my sword and I, you know, I, I crush skulls or whatever the ridiculous metaphor is. And it's like, okay, maybe for a minute and that works for a minute, but then it doesn't because I've seen so many of them go through their really narrowly divorces or the broken relationships with their children or just like highly dysfunctional relationship with self and self-worth. The pain is real across the board. And so, you know, when I look at the need for healing in that regard, there's just so much space for it. There's just so much space for all of us, men and women. Like I, the plan for the treehouse is to extend it out actually because it, because men were in my a sightline and they were asking for it effectively. I was going to kick something off like this a couple of years ago, but it finally got going here after sort of the post weird COVID moment that we're in. But that pain I empathize with so much because in backstory of myself that gives context to me being a leader of this group is that I understand hardship. I would say that my life had been really soft. I mean, I described difficult experiences through you know, stand-up comedy. And I was a pretty resilient guy just in general, the way that I was raised. But my life wasn't, like, I didn't get thrown hard stuff. But in 2015, and you guys were right there, you know, by my side, you're some of the first people to call. Like, my son was born August 8th of 2015. And two days later, my mom died. Back in the States, he was born in, in, in Sweden and my wife is Swedish. And so, so then I got this weird decision to make in that moment. Do I stay with my newborn or do I fly home to be with my family? And not knowing that flying home to be with my family was going to cause a nightmare for my my wife to get back into the United States with our child. Fortunately, I actually knew somebody who's a big media person who was able to help get some stuff to the embassy after months, just in time to make my mom's funeral. But then two months later after that, my dad dies. And then then there's a string of 11 more deaths over the next two and a half years time. And these are all mentors of mine, friends of mine. The last one being, you know, the person that I lived with in Minneapolis who was murdered by a cop going to help somebody in the back. 
And then so at that point, I have my then seven-year-old asking, Daddy, why did, why did somebody shoot Justine? And I thought it was done at that point, but no. Then the fires of Northern California came and burnt down our family home of Oak Park, um, the original Oak Park, and gone were all the ideas of having an institute and all that kind of stuff up north because I was put under so much pressure in this time. And it's just trauma. It's just it's just straight up trauma because there's I got a kid in Minneapolis at that point. I got Maximilian was born. So I got two kids under two. So like even if things were optimal and I had my place all zenned out and I had my all right, my group just making sure that I was green every day. It wasn't going to be because I got two little kids waking me the F up every 42 minutes. And then, oh, by the way, I, I just spent my IRA to buy the gym. And now, oh, oh. It's not having a good year. I'm down to $463 in my account. Literally, no commas, guys, no commas in the year 2015. But thank you for that because now I can be a leader of men who I recognize in them the hurt. And the hurt, like I started saying it earlier, and who one of my mentors taught me about, it's coming. You can decorate, you can protect, you can biohack all you want. Good luck. Good luck. And by the way, when you do that fragile little, fragile little bird, fragile little bird, be careful because it, the, the life will come. And I think, you know, just having the capacity for resilience in those moments can be trained. And that has informed everything that we're doing, both at the treehouse and at the gym. It's like, look, guys, like this is about our life. And if we're not steeled against it, it's brutal. And what I'm really compelled by right now in my coaching and my teaching is like we're at this moment of time where our training, our impulsivity training is at the highest we've ever seen. Like we are not getting to our reflective prefrontal cortex at all as part of our daily experience, just broadly speaking. It's amygdala. It's just stressed. Ah, information, content. Let's go. Red line. So much. And it's just like, I, I just don't see that, that training of like, let's train intentionality versus impulsivity. And that is at the core of like everything that I'm doing right now. Like it really has to be about that because these men are just as capable. They're amazing in the treehouse, but they, ha they, if their impulsive self takes over the, the guy that was 20 or 33 years old, but who's now 45, it's just a different lexicon, different game. And so you got to develop new skills. And that's what I'm interested in supporting. I just want to say, Kenny Kane, so proud of you. It's so awesome you're doing that. And have you had a moment to go email all those 2,000 kids at Davis and been like, suckers? <laughs> I don't suck. You suck. I'm not the sucker. You the sucker. <laughs> I made this uh, commercial in the eighth grade for like some class I was in about zitzkas. And it was like this cream that you put on and would clean up all your, all your zits. Wait, it was called zitzkas? It was called zitzkas. And like, but the big takeaway cell. This is your chance, Kenny King. This is your chance <laughs> right now. The big takeaway cell line was, I can't wait to see my dog and those girls now. Like, I, I was, my dog came back and my the girls came back, and it was all because Zitzkas. And I just feel like this is a Zitzkas moment. I just want to bring that all together. It's a Zitzkas moment. Hashtag Zitzkas. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, just being your friend through all that. We watched Hold you. On. We Hold watched on. you negotiate that, and. Uh, the whole point, I think, exactly right is, man, this physical practice training place may be the only safe place in your life to be able to have this conversation, you know? And it's so interesting that everyone I know gets to this psycho-emotional aspect of this thing 
because you can't have performance unless you feel safe. You can't have performance unless you sleep. You can't, you know, the physios are like, oh, it's not just biomechanics. And I'm like, have you ever worked with human beings before? I mean, of course it's not. It really is like, you know, I mean, Juliet, Juliet famously says to me all the time, she's like, I just think you're just probably an average physical therapist but you're really good at giving people permission. You know? And I'm like, psycho-emotional. That's right. That's right. Kenny, where can we f- where can read we, more about Treehouse? Where can people learn more about all where the stuff you're doing? drop in and see you in LA? Our gym is on the west side of Los Angeles. I have, and we didn't even get to it, and that's totally cool. I'm not on any of the socials by intent. More on that perhaps another time. But I, we do have a website, Oak Park, Los Angeles, and I can be reached at Kenny. Dot com? At, yes, and I can be reached at Kenny at Oak Park, LA. Old school. It's called email and that's it, that that'll work. I love it. I love you're just like there's there's only one way and that's the front door. Yeah. Kenny, um, thank you so much, my friend. We uh, we love you so we could, deeply. We're gonna have to so have grateful. you on for a second edition, just yeah, FYI. Sure. Second edition. You'll be back. I would love that. I love that. It's so you guys and welcome back. You remarkably done. Having come back from Europe so many times, I just I know exactly what you're feeling right now. And I'm amazed that that this was semi cogent. I'm just directing uh, straight cocaine into my dr- in my legs right now under the table. You can't even tell. <laughs> we appreciate you so much. Thanks, Kenny, you, Kenny Kane, Kane, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it!